Please open your Bibles to Romans 11. Our primary text this morning will be Ephesians 2, but we're actually going to begin in Romans. And as you turn to Romans chapter 11, I'll remind you that this is our second week in a five-week series covering five essential truths, biblical truths, of the Protestant Reformation, the five solas, as they came to be known in Latin. Last week, we looked at sola scriptura, the authority of truth and what we believe is founded upon God's word alone. This week, we're going to study sola gratia, by grace alone. Salvation is gift of God's grace. Next week, Pastor Daniel will be speaking to us on sola fide, salvation is through faith alone. The week after that, we'll look at sola Christus um, in Christ alone, in his work, and his merit. And finally, the end to which salvation exists, sola Dei Gloria, to the glory of God alone. This morning, we're looking at sola gratia by grace alone. And if there's any concept that people in our day are familiar with, that people celebrate, it's grace. We love grace. Grace, if there's any hymn of the church known by anyone, surely it is John Newton's amazing grace. How could there be a conflict, you may ask, about grace? And if there was a conflict about grace, surely that's something relegated to the 500 years ago and not today. Well, I'm gonna suggest that the, the problems that Luther and the reformers experienced against the Catholic Church and their understanding of grace, those same problems exist today that we, I think, in many cases, have far too shallow and anemic a view of grace. As much as the the initial um, conflagration of the Reformation became centered on the authority of Scripture against the authority of church councils and the Pope, what sparked it was Luther being provoked at what he viewed as the mishandling the misdefining, the misspeaking about God's grace. It was the indulgence sellers traveling throughout the land, most notably Tetzel, selling a papal indulgence to try to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and selling grace, and brazenly doing so. So much grace for so little coin. That was what prompted and provoked Luther. The, the debate quickly became about authority. How, how do these matters get settled? But the Reformation, in one sense, began over controversy on grace. And if you read through the 95 Theses, I'll just read you a few of them that flow in a row. You can see how this is the issue that Luther was initially most stirred in his spirit about. Here, I'll just read um, Theses 62 to 67. They flow together, you'll see. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. So Luther asserts that. He wants to debate people on this. He wants to invite a council discussion. He wasn't initially trying to be a schismatic. He wasn't trying to divide the church, but he thought these were issues the church needed to gather and discuss. So he was basically saying, I, I'll argue this side, and anyone who wants to disagree, let's get together and have a discussion. And he wanted to argue that the treasure of the church is the holy gospel, the glory of God. Number 63, but this treasure is naturally most odious, for it makes the first to be last. 64, on the other hand, the treasure of indulgences is most naturally acceptable, for it makes the last to be first. Therefore, 65, the treasure of the gospel, the treasures of the gospel are nets 
with which one formerly fished for men with wealth. What he's speaking of there is Jesus saying, use unrighteous mammon to make friends for yourself. You, you pour money into the, the promulgation of the gospel to catch men's souls. The gospel are nets with which one formerly fished for men with wealth. 66, in contrast, the treasures of indulgences are nets with which one now fishes for the wealth of men. 67, indulgences which demagogues acclaim to be the greatest graces are actually understood only to be so insofar as they promote greed. So he saw what was going on. Grace was being sold, bartered for in the indulgence system, and that led to a fundamental questioning of what is grace? How is it related, and what part of our salvation is made up of grace? Make no mistake, Rome did not and does not challenge that our salvation is by grace. It is, of course, the alone asphyxiation, the sola, which is under dispute. So to begin our study, we're really just gonna look at two points. Biblically, what is grace, and how does it relate to salvation? Biblically, what is grace and how does it relate to salvation? I'm gonna start with a definition here at the top. Here are your blanks. What do I think, in summary, in one simple sentence, grace alone, sola gratia means, means this. Our salvation is completely dependent upon God's free and unmerited gift. Our salvation is completely dependent upon God's free and unmerited gift. The way of thinking of that contrast is what, what Luther is arguing, what I think the Bible is teaching, what we'll try to look at this morning, is that salvation from top to bottom and everything in between is a matter of grace. That was a position the church held for, for long years, but around the turn of the millennium, about 1000 AD, there was a shift in the medieval church um, probably most clearly expressed by one of the Catholic theologians, Gabriel Beale, dealing with a question in his writing on the Canon of the Mass, how can an individual attain to a state of grace? And the answer Beale came up with, what Luther was taught, what Rome held to and holds to in many ways still now, is this, that God has created, in effect, a pact between God and man. And God has committed himself to bestow a state of grace on those who literally do what is in them or literally do their best. Or to the modern vernacular, God helps those who help themselves. The thought being that God has given a measure of grace, or there's a measure of, of goodness in man, and if man will take that and work with it, God will take that weak, ineffectual effort, which they define as congruent merit, meaning it's not in and of itself meritorious, but, but God will respond to it by giving grace. And then, once in a state of grace, that individual can now produce condign merit or merit that's intrinsically good. So the, the understanding Luther had is that God graciously brought about an arrangement or a pact. He didn't have to. It was by grace. The pact was that if you would be faithful with what you had, if you would improve upon or use the grace, the goodness you had, then God would supply the rest. Do, do the best with what you have and God will make up the difference, in other words. So understand, they're not arguing that people are made righteous entirely by their own merits. What they are saying, though, is that God's grace is conditioned upon you doing something, you responding with what you have. And if you will do what is in you, do the best you can, God will give you grace and make up the difference. That's, that's the understanding of Luther's rebelling against. And under that system, then, they can bring in the entire sacramental system. 
The entire sacramental system is a series of mechanisms whereby grace is distributed. The Eucharist is a grace, and you come and you partake in the, this is according to Rome, and you partake of the Eucharist, and you receive grace, and you, you do penance, and you receive a grace, and you buy an indulgence, and grace is poured out. It's like a machine, and you turn the crank, and out comes grace. And God didn't have to give us this arrangement. It was freely done by him. It was a grace. But what he gave us wasn't a system of grace, but rather a system of tit-for-tat, what can really be broken down to is purchasing meriting grace. And Luther rebelled against this. So we have to begin first by asking biblically then, what should we understand grace to be? At the simplest level, you can think of grace and mercy contrasting. Mercy is withholding a negative or a punishment that is rightly due. So you, you exercise mercy when you don't give somebody the bad thing they deserve. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is freely giving someone something they do not deserve. And we'll begin defending this understanding of grace, that grace is God's free and unmerited gift in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're gonna look at two passages in Romans that I think make it clear the nature of grace, because this is crucial for us to understand, especially grace as it relates to salvation. In Romans 11, verses five through six, the apostle Paul writes this. So too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, It is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Okay, and I'm just, I'm not focusing on the remnant being chosen. All I'm gonna focus on is that last little phrase. Grace and works are antithetical. The one eliminates the other. It is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace could no longer be grace. You're blank here. Grace cannot be bought or owed. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. Grace cannot be bought or owed because grace and works are mutually exclusive. So just get that from Romans 11, five through six. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What he's saying is the second, if we can establish that something is related to works, whatever that thing is, it isn't grace. You get that? Otherwise it wouldn't be grace. These are mutually exclusive concepts. Now turn back to Romans chapter four. And here, the ESV's translation is a little unhelpful um, uh, because at the heart of works, Paul's gonna argue, is debt, obligation, okay? So Romans 4.4, and what the ESV has written is this. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. Literally in the Greek, it says, now to the one who works, his wages are not reckoned according to grace, but according to debt or obligation. And that's the crucial piece here. You're blank here. Works correspond to debt, not to grace. If you work, if you put the hours in, your employer is obligated to give you his paycheck, to pay you. If he doesn't, you can take them to court. They have not given you a grace when they give you the paycheck. They give you what is owed. And so works correspond to obligation to the debt. You do a work for somebody, they now are indebted to response. And that relationship of working and getting is a relationship not of grace, but of obligation. So you put those two things together. Grace and works are antithetical. They can't coexist. The one rules out the other. And the fundamental nature of works is debt or obligation. And that then is how I would try to defend point A, grace cannot be bought or owed. You can't be obligated to be gracious. 
To speak about obligated grace is to speak about round squares, four-sided triangles. It's a contradiction in terms. Grace can't be owed. That's the nature of works, which means you can't sell grace in an indulgence, doesn't it? You can't sell it. You can't buy it. It can't be bought or owed. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. Works correspond to debt and not to grace. And that's crucial to get. This is just defining our terms. When the the New Testament speaks of God's saving grace, it is speaking about that which is antithetical to, opposite to, in contrast to debt and obligation and works. That is grace. Grace cannot be bought or owed. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. Works correspond to debt and not to grace. So what that means played out then is anytime you think God is obligated, God ought to do something, God should do something, whatever that thing is, and it may be a wonderful thing, it isn't grace. Get that. Whatever it is you think God should do, ought to do, must do, whatever that thing is, and it may be a wonderful thing, it just isn't grace, okay? Because point B, grace can only be freely given. Grace can only be freely given. Now turn all the way into the back of your Bible to Exodus 33. I think it's important to lay our groundwork. Once we lay our groundwork, I think working through this as it relates to the gospel will be a lot easier. So bear with me. Exodus 33. Now the situation in Exodus is this. The people have sinned with the golden calf. They've fashioned for themselves an idol. They've bowed down to it. I've credited this golden calf with freeing them from Egypt, and God is angry, and God is preparing to destroy all the people, without exception, and start over with Moses. And Moses climbs back up on the mountain, and he intercedes on their behalf. He pleads for grace and for mercy, and God relents. Only some of the people will die. And Moses pleads again that God would go up with them and not let them travel on their own, and God again gives grace, and he relents. And then Moses makes a final Heal, bolder still, verse 18 of Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. Now understand, up to this point, there is no scripture. Perhaps Moses has begun writing the book of Genesis, perhaps. But everything Moses has heard and learned about this God, he has received orally, either through the reports of God's interactions with Abraham or through God speaking to him through the burning bush and then at other times, But Moses does not know much about this God with whom he has to do. He knows what he's heard about, about God's faithfulness to Abraham. He knows what God has said to him. But unlike us who have a whole Bible where God reveals his character both in actions and in words, Moses had very little. And he wants to know God's glory. What is it, God, that makes you so wonderful? What is it, God, that is central to how great you are? And look at God's amazing answer. The Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Isn't that amazing? And there's a lot of things about our God that are worthy of praise and that are glorious and wonderful. But when Moses says, show me your glory, what's the first thing God reveals about himself that is his glory? It is his freedom to give grace to whomever he will give grace. Grace can't be owed. It can't be obligated. And Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll tell you how wonderful I am. I grace whom I grace. 
You can plead for it, you can ask for it. Moses has just done this very thing. He has interceded for the people and God in his good pleasure has graced them by not destroying them all. And what God is saying in part to Moses is understand Moses, you can plead, you can petition, but you're not forcing my hand, you're not making me do anything. I grace whom I grace. Go ahead and ask. It pleases me when you ask. But please don't think I was obligated to do this. Please don't think you somehow forced me, you turned the crank, you did the ritual correctly, and now I'm obligated to grace. You asked for grace, I gave grace. And it's my glory to do that. So God's freedom in grace is his glory. Point one, his grace is his glory. This is very central to who God is, how he works, how he interacts, And so rightly understanding God's grace is in part rightly understanding his glory. Corrupting our understanding of God's grace is corrupting God's glory. And just as we saw in Romans where the necessary consequence must be if grace can't be obligated, if grace can't be bought or sold or owed, it has to be freely given. At the very beginning of the story when God comes out and for the first time begins speaking about himself. This is really... The second time God begins to elaborate about who he is. The first time is when he gives his name at the burning bush. Tell them that I am sent you. We're learning about who this God is. As God speaks about himself. This is really the second time God says, I, 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 my glory is this. All my goodness is this. The Lord. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Paul, speaking about this in Romans 9, says this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, it's the glory of God is he doesn't need to, he isn't obligated to, he doesn't have to, it's not a matter that he should, he just does show grace. He does it freely because it's who he is not because something outside of him makes him do it. This is the glory of God that he freely gives grace. This is the explanation given in Deuteronomy 7 for why God chose and loves Israel. Listen to this, it's wonderful. Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God chose one little group of people, Israel. He didn't choose another group. He didn't choose the Canaanites. He didn't choose the Chinese. He didn't choose the Phoenicians. He chose Israel. Why? Negatively, verse 7, it is not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord your God chose you and loved you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. Why is it then? Verse 8, It is because the Lord loves you. I just love that. Why did God choose and love Israel? Because he did. It was free. He didn't look and measure the nations and pick the best one. He didn't respond to something in Israel that attracted him. He was the outflowing of a sovereign good pleasure. The Lord loves you because he loves you. I love that. It's because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. The Lord brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And you go further back. Why did God choose Abraham? Because he did. Because it was his good pleasure to be gracious to Abraham. Abraham was a moon worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees, and the Lord called him and he came. And we make the mistake of thinking that God's picking the good guys. God chose Noah. 
Because Noah, apart from God's grace, was a good guy. No. God's grace is at work. You read through the genealogies, and you're struck with the people God chose for the Messianic line. A Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. Um, Bathsheba. And you know of the, the relationship with her and David and how their marriage occurred. And the Messianic line comes through that. Through Ruth, a Moabitess. Through an incestuous relationship with T- Tamar and Judah. And, and the, the, the genealogy of the Messiah is a genealogy of God's grace, not of merit. It's for God freely choosing to give grace. That's his nature. That's his glory. His grace is why he loves us. Now turn to Matthew 20. Now this is the wonderful news about grace, but there's a reason, I think, why we don't feel comfortable at times with this definition of grace. And, and Jesus brings us to a point in Matthew 20 with the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. We are very uncomfortable with grace that is free, grace that is not obligated, grace that can be given or not given. It makes us helpless, makes us depend wholly on God. Matthew chapter 20. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. So he hires people, he negotiates a price for them that everyone agrees to. This is voluntary labor. No one's a slave here. People don't have to work, but they agree to the price. Seems fair to them. And they go out and begin working. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into my vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give to you. He doesn't negotiate with them. He simply says, I will be good to you. I'll pay you a fair wage. So they went out, going out again about the sixth hour. Again, the ninth, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. So there are people who worked literally an hour or two at most, in the field. And they got a full day's wage. They got the amount of wage negotiated by those who worked the full day. Then verse 10, and when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. And so what they're thinking is, man, if this master of this house is being so generous with the people who worked an hour or two, think of what he'll do for us who put in a full, hard day's work what happens? Now those who were hired first came. They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And upon receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me? For denarius, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give it to this last worker as I gave it to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. That is a lesson about grace. We, we live in a culture that conflates and confuses grace 
and in fairness or equality with justice. You know, I remember growing up, if you were, went into the classroom and you gave one kid a piece of candy, you had to give all the pieces a piece of candy, all the kids a piece of candy. If we're gonna be kind and give someone a benefit, we gotta give it to everyone. We don't wanna be unfair. And somehow we've concluded that fairness and justice are the same. Now understand this, God is righteous, God is just. God never claims to be fair in that sense. In fact, he is manifestly unfair. He does not treat all the nations the same, he chooses Israel, does he not? He did not give all peoples scripture in his verbal revelation, he gave it to one people. Paul's gonna say that's one of the benefits of being a Jew. To them were entrusted the oracles of God. In a sense of equality and treating everyone the same, that is unfair. Nothing unjust about it. Or just think about where you were born in time and space, the privileges of, and the, the privilege is the prevalent term these days, right? Of, afforded to you that others do not have. Others in other places of the world, others born in other times. God does not treat all people in that sense the same. He gives differing measures of grace. The point of this parable is he's free to do that. He does no wrong to anyone. If God wants to be particularly gracious to the Jewish people, what wrong has he done the Philistines? If God wants to be particularly gracious to you or to someone you know, what wrong has he done you? And we get really uncomfortable with this. We get really uncomfortable. When we cry out just like these servants, that's not fair. If you've got kids, you've heard that refrain before. I had to sit down with my daughter and explain to her, you're right, that's not fair. You make that sound like that's some crime. You make that sound like that's some complaint. So what if I let one of the children stay up later than you? What's that to you? So what if the vineyard owner is gracious to some, pays them far more than they deserve? Is it not his freedom to do that? And, and, and Jesus tells this parable, and we get really uncomfortable with it, really uncomfortable with God's free grace. Because you can't earn it. You can't make him give it. He gives it to whom he wants. He graces whom he graces. That's his glory. The vineyard owner does what he wants with his own money. You see, his grace removes all possible complaint. His grace removes all possible complaint. Now, now turn to Ephesians chapter two. Our text for this morning. That's all, that's introduction. But we gotta understand grace. And if you understand grace biblically, as, as God declares it in Exodus, as Jesus declares it in Matthew 20, as Paul elaborates it in Romans, and I think our next points, we'll be able to move somewhat quickly. You see, Luther's responding to this notion that grace was something God gave if you would simply be faithful and do well with what you have. Do the best you can. Do what is in you. You'll get grace. Luther's challenge is the exact opposite. We do nothing to warrant or merit grace. Let's, let's see what the scriptures say, though, however. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is, this is the gospel truth about every one of us here in this room, just as it is of the Ephesian church. You and I, we, you, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should work in them. I'm gonna argue, the reformers argued, and I believe the Bible teaches that salvation is completely, top to bottom, dependent upon God's grace. And here in this passage, first we'll see our desperate need of grace. The Roman system was caught up in in an error that goes by the name of semi-Pelagianism, and we won't dive into that here, but it's the view that basically there's some good and some bad in each and every one of us. There's the the good dog, there's the bad dog. And so that's a prerequisite understanding of this do the best you can, is that God's given you some grace, and inside of you is some portion that can do something with that. Now it's up to you to feed the good dog and not the bad dog. It's up to you to freely choose to do the good, and if you do the good, then God will make up the difference. And, and Luther said, that, that won't do. You've completely misunderstood. Misunderstood. You've complete, yeah. No, misunderstood, that's correct. Sorry, I thought I was about to say misunderestimate, but that's the one, okay. You've completely misunderstood and underestimated man's problem. We aren't born sick. We aren't born dying. We're dead. Dead people don't do things, do they? That's the first point here. We are dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people don't do the best they can. They just lie there dead. And we picture the gospel sometimes wrongly as a drowning person and and Jesus is reaching out to the drowning person and they're just about to go under and they reach the hand. There's his hand reaching out. You just gotta lay hold of Christ. More biblical understandings, we're dead 10 fathoms down at the bottom of the sea. And according to this passage, God makes us alive. You were dead. Point two, you were by nature a child of wrath, children of wrath. You see, we're dead, and the wrath of God abides over us. Our problem is far greater than Rome understood. Luther grasped the, the, the nature of this. In fact, in an earlier disputation, Luther um, wrote this in response to do the best you can, do what is in you. The person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. One of the things I really enjoy about Luther is you never have to wrestle with what's he getting at. He is so blunt and so straightforward, there's no confusion. In his explanation of why he would say that, he says this in his explanation of Thesis 16. On the basis of what has been said, the following is clear. While a person is doing what is in him, he sins and seeks himself in everything. You see, because all that's in you is evil. According to Paul, I know that nothing good is in me. According to why God flooded the earth and after the earth, every thought and intention of the heart is only evil continually. So if you do what is in you, you're gonna sin. 
You're not going to improve upon grace. You're not going to do the best you can. You're going to sin. That's Luther's whole teaching on the bondage of the will. You sometimes wonder why the reformers and the reformation in part centered on issues of, of sin and depravity and predestination. Why those doctrines sometimes called Calvinism or sometimes also called the doctrines of grace. This is why. We need to rightly understand the nature of the problem to understand the solution. If we're dying and sick, we need one type of solution. If we're dead, we need resurrection. We need regeneration. We need new life. If you're gonna do what's in you, apart from grace, you're gonna sin and seek self in everything. And this is crucial. And, And this, again, I think reflects what we read in Deuteronomy. Luther says this, I love this quote. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. You see, what, what he's contesting is this notion that God looks down, and if you'll simply do this little thing that pleases him, if you'll simply do the best you can with what you've got, then he will pour out his love and his grace on you. If he finds you pleasing to him, if he looks down from heaven and sees you pleasing to him, then he will grace you. Luther says, no, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Jesus speaking about this in John, we'll see in a moment in John, has the same understanding. We are dead, we are helpless. We don't do things, things get done to us. So now, that's our desperate need of grace. The good news of the gospel is God has lavishly supplied us with the riches of his grace, lavishly graced us. Turn, turn back to chapter one of Ephesians. We'll get back to chapter two, but I think it makes better logical sense if we look at it in this order in verses five through seven of Ephesians one. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight. You see, that's where I get lavishing the riches of his grace. So the bad news, the scary news, is you can't deserve God's grace. You can't force his hand. You can't make him be gracious to you. You can't do things that, that cause him to respond. Okay, I guess I'll grace that person. The good news is to that helpless, scary, and it's scary to be helpless. Because if God doesn't choose to be gracious, I'm doomed, I'm done. Yes, you are. Good news is God is rich in grace. He lavishly pours it out. This is, understanding this is how you get to amazing grace. Not mediocre grace, not pretty cool grace, but just mind-blowing amazing grace. So here, the riches of his grace lavished upon us. And I just wanna look at six things the Apostle Paul says here in Ephesians. We could make this list longer if we expanded it beyond Ephesians, but I'll keep it for the next 15 minutes to Ephesians only, one and two. Six gospel truths, six aspects of the gospel Paul credits to sovereign free grace. It's not just that grace is God bringing this pact, but rather God accomplishing every step of it. Okay? Number one, by grace we were predestined for adoption. K 
kids don't adopt themselves, do they? They get adopted. And starting in verse six, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace. We're to praise his grace because he predestined us. Which means his predestining us was not him looking down the quarter of time and saying, oh, there's somebody who chooses me. I like that grace. It's a free, sovereign gift. He graces whom he graces. And if his predestination for adoption is according to grace, he predestines whom he predestines. That's what this means. His choice of you is a free act of grace. You did nothing to warrant it. You did nothing to demand it. It's free. He predestined you. for. We've been singing about this all morning. I want you to notice how this, this theology, this understanding of truth is woven into the songs we're singing. By grace you've been forgiven, verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The gift of Christ on the cross, his death for you, and your subsequent forgiveness. God didn't have to send Jesus. God didn't have to sacrifice his son. No one forced his hand. This exercise is free and sovereign grace. Our God is rich in grace, and he lavishly pours it out in Christ. He sent his son. Now, back to chapter two. In chapter two, we saw Paul declare the problem. You and I are dead, and you and I are under God's wrath. To quote Carl Truman, if the human existential and religious problem is death, then only an external action on the part of someone more powerful than death can resolve the difficulty. That's exactly what we see here. We're dead. We're following along the course of this world. We're in lockstep with the spirit of this age, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, by nature children of wrath, verse four, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Do not take away God's credit as if God made us alive because of something we did. The whole point is we're in lockstep with the God of this world, with the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We're dead, we're under wrath. We don't deserve anything but hell, but God because of his rich love, because of his mercy, because of his grace made us alive. Please don't rob God of his glory by saying he made you alive because you turned to him. That's not what it says. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Then he, he has to interject here. By grace, you've been saved. Get it. It's God's free Good, wonderful gift. Jesus speaking about, in the blank here, by grace we have been regenerated. I think regenerated is simply given life, to generate. Jesus talks of this as being born again. And we can sometimes spuriously think that we're born again because we believed. Jesus gives it the exact opposite in John 3. You can't even see the kingdom if you're not born again. You can't even understand the gospel message unless the Spirit does a work in your heart. And Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 7 through 8, makes this exact same point about free grace. Listen to this. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, 
But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Being born of the Spirit is like the wind blowing. You can't make it go somewhere. You can't predict where it'll go. You simply feel it as it goes by. The Spirit gives life, so the Spirit gives life because God graces whom he graces. Because his grace and the grace of regeneration is God's free sovereign gift. By grace, you've been regenerated. You've been predestined. You've been forgiven by grace. Ephesians 2, 6 through 7. By grace and for grace, you will be glorified. Look at 6 through 7. He has raised us up with him. This is so certain. Our future is so certain. Paul can speak about it in the past tense. Raised us up with him. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Why? Why did God raise us with Christ in heaven? Why glorify us? Why bring us to heaven? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We are glorified so we can see and behold and receive more grace. Isn't that just wonderful? He raised us so that, verse 7, in the coming ages he might show. In the coming ages. This isn't something he's showing now. He's going to show it in the coming ages. He's going to reveal it then. The immeasurable riches of his grace. God says, I've got grace I want to show them immeasurable riches of grace I want to show them, but I got to save them and sanctify them and glorify them first before I can show it to them. I got to get them up here with me. (laughs) You have been glorified. You will be glorified by and for grace. You think you've seen grace now? You've seen nothing yet. There is grace to be revealed. We make the gospel way too small. We make God's glory way too small. We need to take seriously these lavish, amazing statements of God's grace and goodness. You've been, by and for grace, you will be glorified. Verse five, I mean, point five here. By grace, we have believed. Maybe you're thinking, okay, all that's true, Pastor Jeremy, but I know that last bit, faith, which we'll be hearing more about next week. Faith, that was my part. That was the piece I chipped in. If you can believe that, we're back to that turn the crank mechanism. It's all sitting there ready. You put in the last little piece, and then out comes all this grace. That's not what Paul says. For by grace you have been saved. Verse 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The very faith you and I have is gifted to us by God. That's what the Bible teaches. That when people come to faith, yes, they do believe. Yes, they must repent and believe and exercise faith. But that belief, that faith that they exercise is due to God's grace. Here, Luther says this helpfully on this point. The fictitious idea that a person can be holy by himself denies God the pleasure of saving sinners. God must therefore take First take the sledgehammer of the law in his fists and smash the beast of self-righteousness and its brood of self-confidence, self-wisdom, and self-help. When the conscience has been thoroughly frightened by the law, it welcomes the gospel of grace with its message of a Savior who came not to break the bruised reed, nor to quench the smoldering flax, but to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, and to grant forgiveness of sins to all the captives. God is the author of our faith. Salvation is from the Lord. It's not simply that God graciously sent a Savior and now if we'll simply respond to the pact and do our bit, we can be forgiven. According to Ephesians, 
We're predestined by grace, forgiven by grace, regenerated by grace, glorified by grace. We have believed by grace. Finally, by grace, we are being sanctified. You're ongoing day-by-day Christian walk is a matter of grace. In fact, I think far too often we struggle in our walk because we try to do it in our own strength. We try to muscle our way through obedience instead of relying on God's grace, which are new every day. His mercies are new. According to verse 10, look at this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, which is another way of saying predestined, that we should walk in them. And is it not the case that we're only able to be faithful and only able to move forward in our faith because of the grace of the Spirit of God living within us as he causes us to will and to do according to his good pleasure? Yes, we do it. We're not passive in this, but God is doing it through us as we do it. Salvation is of grace. If you're in Christ Jesus, it is only because of God's grace. And we need to get this. We need to give God the glory due his name. He says this is his glory. His glory, he says to Moses, is I grace whom I grace. And he has graced us. And he has poured out his grace on us. And God is jealous for his glory. He desired to be, desires to be praised for his glory. And we minimize it and we shrink it because we're, un, we're unaccustomed to this type of grace. We're uncomfortable with this type of grace. We, we'd much rather a God who treats everyone the same See, the advantage of the, of the turn the crank system is, hey, I did it and you could too and everybody has got a fair swipe at this and everyone's got a fair shot at this and then God's nice and fair but he's not the God who graces whom he graces, is he then? No, God, everyone is invited. No one gets turned away and we go out as ministers of God's grace and by his word and through his spirit he gives life. He does it as he chooses. Top to bottom, our salvation is of grace. I'm gonna call the worship team back up we're close this morning singing amazing grace and just as you sing through these words think of the different aspects of salvation that John Newton is ascribing to God and his grace we get the blessing he gets the glory don't take the glory he get, we get the blessing we get the lavish riches of grace poured out upon us in Christ he gets the glory let's sing amazing grace please stand